0: Eventually, the performance boost to additional striving dissipates to zero. And if you don't stop there, if you don't recognize that more striving will equal no more performance, then you'll enter a zone of declining returns, in which more striving backfires. Hi, and welcome to Philosopher Insights. My name's Herb Lamba. Today, we're going to take a look at The Perfection Trap, Embracing the Power of Good Enough. The author is Thomas Coran. The book is published in 2023. I wanted to share a number of my favorite insights, starting with What is Perfectionism? Three Types of perfectionists, Diminishing Return, Social Media and Perfectionism, Meritocracy, Rethink What We Measure, Basic Income, and Finish Off with a Closing Thought. So let's start with the introduction. Quote, Epidemics of burnout and mental stress mark our hectic times. We seem to be drowning in discontentment, submerged in the thicket of never enough, preoccupied with perfection because everyone else seems so effortlessly perfect. Deep down, we know this isn't a normal or natural way to exist. We understand, by virtue of being human, that no one is perfect or could ever be made perfect. And we recognize in our hearts, if not in our heads, that perfectionism's heavy armor is weighing us down. I too am a perfectionist, and if there's one thing I want this book to be, it's a souvenir of solace from one perfectionist to another. The more time I've spent learning about my own perfectionism, the perfectionism of those around me, and the results of research studies looking into perfectionism's effect on health and happiness, the more I've come to realize that our stories are born of essentially the same root. Sure, we suffer from perfectionism in our own special ways, but our journeys begin with the same core belief that we're not enough to matter to other people or be loved by them, which is the same thing. I hope reading this book gives you comfort. I hope it helps you to gain perspective over what perfectionism does to you and where it really comes from. I hope it gives you peace of mind knowing that none of this is your fault, that you are enough no matter how much your culture tries to convince you otherwise. End quote. Well, fellow listeners, I am thrilled to introduce you to the captivating world of The Perfection Trap, penned by the talented author Thomas Curran. This marks my inaugural experience diving into Curran's work, and I must say, I am thoroughly impressed. The prologue's introduction instantly grabbed my attention, touching on a subject that silently affects so many of us, often without us even realizing the profound impact it can have on our lives. I am honored to share a handful of my favorite insights from this book. So are you ready to embark on this enlightening journey? Let's dive in and explore the nuggets of wisdom that the perfection trap has to offer. Insight number one. What is perfectionism? Quote, We're aware of perfectionism's collateral damage, counted in hours of relentless striving, untold personal sacrifices, and heaps of self-imposed pressure. But that's sort of the point, isn't it? Perfectionism is the insignia of self-sacrificial success in the modern culture, the badge of honor that conceals an altogether more fragile reality. By definition, perfectionism is an impossible goal. You can't measure it, it's often subjective, and it's destined to be forever out of reach for mere mortals like us. And since perfection is always beyond the possible, since chasing it is such an utterly hopeless quest, the cost for those who try must be very high indeed. For the perfectionist, success is a bottomless pit that depletes us in its pursuit. While the answer to that deeper question, am I enough, is always over the horizon. And just like the horizon, it recedes as we approach. End quote. My personal introduction to the dangers of perfectionism came from Tal Ben-Shahar in his great book, The Pursuit of Perfect, where he says, quote, Perfectionists reject everything that deviates from their flawless, faultless ideal vision, and as a result, they suffer whenever they do not meet their own unrealistic standards. Optimists accept and make the best of everything that life has to offer. End quote. Being a perfectionist, it's like stepping into a tricky maze that can mess with your mind and life in ways you might not even realize. You know those times when you're constantly chasing after perfection? That little voice in your head that says, it's not good enough yet. Keep working on it. Well, that's the perfectionist bug sneaking in. Now don't get me wrong. Striving for excellence is great. It pushes you to do your best. But when it turns into a full-blown perfectionist mindset, that's where things can go haywire. I believe that when you're so focused on getting everything just right, you're less likely to take risks or think outside the box. And that's where some of the most brilliant ideas come from. The messy, imperfect process of trial and error. Insight number two, three types of perfectionists. Quote, Perfectionism is characterized by deficit thinking. I'm not perfect enough, and therefore I must conceal my imperfections from everyone and all around me. End quote. The author dives into the incredible multidimensional model of perfectionism, a game changer in understanding our pursuit of perfection. This model breaks it down into three fascinating categories that shed light on different aspects of this journey. Let's kick things off with the first category self-oriented perfectionism. Imagine aiming for the stars with sky-high expectations. This one's all about focusing on yourself, and it's quite common among those who set the bar unbelievably high. Imagine looking into the mirror and critiquing your performance or appearance, all in the quest for flawlessness. Now let's move on to the next piece of the puzzle, other-oriented perfectionism. Ever found yourself setting sky-high standards for those around you, That's what we're talking about here. It's like being on a mission to uplift others to some superhuman level of perfection. Imagine this. You're always looking out for imperfections in others, almost like a perfection detective. But guess what? We're all beautifully imperfect in our own unique ways. Embracing that is part of the magic of life. The final piece of the model is socially prescribed perfectionism. This is the feeling that a spotlight from the outside world is always shining on us making us think we need to be flawless. This perception can be as tricky as an optical illusion. In this dimension, it's like the world is handing us a script of perfection and expecting us to play the role to the letter. We start believing that everyone around us is holding a magnifying glass to our every flaw. The author takes you on a journey to unravel the intricacies of each dimension, and I'm here to cheer you on to take the plunge and explore the depth of his insights by reading the book. Insight number three, diminishing returns. Quote, perfectionists are like over-fertilized crops. When fertilizer is first applied, the crops will readily absorb the chemicals and use them to hasten their growth. However, after growing a certain amount, the crops will become less and less responsive to additional fertilizer. Amount of fertilizer that would have grown the crops by inches when they were seedlings will scarcely grow them by a hair's breadth when they are ready to harvest. If more fertilizer is applied to eke out more growth, the crops will become poisoned and wither. You can't forever move forward without, at some point, reaching a threshold beyond which you end up wrecking yourself. Eventually, the performance boost to additional striving dissipates to zero. And if you don't stop there, if you don't recognize that more striving will equal no more performance, then you'll enter a zone of declining returns, in which more striving backfires, end quote. The author suggests that this is where perfectionists often find themselves, in the zone of declining returns. It's like trying to squeeze juice out of an already squeezed orange. It backfires. Your efforts might begin to strain your progress, creating a kind of counterproductive zone. As I reflect on the path I've traveled, particularly on how I embarked on this podcasting adventure, I can't help but see how the clutches of perfectionism held me back. I remember those early days when I got tangled up in a web of comparison, measuring myself against others in terms of their eloquence, the pristine sound of their recordings, and countless other details. I'll be honest, I haven't completely shaken off my perfectionist tendencies. But you know what? Taking that bold step to finally release the first episode of the podcast worked wonders. It's like a breath of fresh air, a breakthrough that nudged me closer to overcoming those tendencies that hold me back. Insight number four, social media and perfectionism. Quote, In 2021, Frances Hogan, a former Facebook product manager, leaked findings of an in-house mental health deep dive to the Wall Street Journal. The deep dive was a triangulation of research methods focused on groups, surveys, and diary studies that Facebook carried out somewhere between 2019 and 2020. They were concerned about how Instagram impacted teens and wanted to know what effects it had on their mental health. The conclusions were alarming. One chart shows that about half of Instagram users feel the platform amplifies pressure to look perfect. Another reveals that about 40% of users say the platform makes them worry about not appearing attractive enough, wealthy enough, or popular enough. But perhaps the most disturbing slide of all was the leaked bar chart on thoughts of suicide. According to that, 6% of US teens and a staggering 13% of British teens told Facebook's researchers that spending time on Instagram was one reason why they felt like they wanted to kill themselves. End quote. In the digital age, social media has spun a web where the lives of others seem picture-perfect, intensifying the rise of anxiety and depression among the youth. What's more concerning is that the very platforms responsible for this are now fine-tuning their algorithms to serve our youngsters a constant stream of content that fuels their already troubled minds. Taking charge of this situation and standing by the next generation means guiding them through the perils of excessive social media and nudging them to uncover alternative avenues for joy and amusement. Quote, sure, we can point to smartphones and say, that's why social media harms teens, but this charge doesn't help us understand why Facebook wouldn't hear the gravity of its own research or why, despite all the evidence of harm, the industry as a whole is so vociferously resistant to change. Research shows that reducing social media-based smartphone use for just an hour a day significantly decreases symptoms of depression and anxiety and increases happiness and health. End quote. My own family gives me so much grief for not being glued to my smartphone like a social media addict. I look at myself like a smartphone ninja dodging unnecessary screen time and keeping my daily swipes in check. I've transformed my smartphone into a personal growth gadget as I listen to content to grow my mind while I take my morning walks. Insight number five, meritocracy. Quote, most young people are acutely aware of the hard work clause and they're made aware of it because we live in a culture that dresses success and failure, high class and low class, in the moral fabric of merit. Under this regime, which we call a meritocracy, you're expected to always prove yourself a someone of worth. The rules are quite clear and they're mercilessly drilled into you from childhood. The higher the value of your credentials, the more money you make, and the shinier new things you can buy to mark your status. Via endless assessments and tests and a knock-on process of very public sifting, sorting, and ranking, young people are being taught to understand that the excessive pressures built into a meritocracy are simply the natural order of things. Whether they like it or not, they must continually benchmark themselves against others and understand that there's always more studying to do, higher goals to set themselves, and extraordinary grades to shoot for. That culture of excellence makes you reliant on the outcomes of your striving and, ultimately, it means you come to define yourself in the very strict and narrow terms of straight A's and nothing but straight A's, end quote. Back in 2017, they did this survey with Canadian youngsters, and guess what? More than half of the kids in elementary school, that's 55% and even more high schoolers at about 62%, were all like, yep, we've got to be perfect with our schoolwork. It's like the school system's been telling them that getting A pluses isn't just good. It's like oxygen for survival in today's world. To shift the narrative away from obsessing over top grades, the author proposes a revamp of our education system. The new approach wouldn't be all about competition and rankings, but about arming everyone with the skills to lead meaningful lives on their terms, no matter where they start. This requires well-equipped schools and fairly compensated teachers who can deliver top-notch education across the spectrum. The emphasis would shift from chasing exam scores and rankings to fostering growth curiosity, and learning. Put simply, education in a true meritocracy doesn't require young people to be perfect. It only asks that they have a passion and free-ranging curiosity to take them in a forward direction, toward goals that are truly theirs to decide. Insight number six, rethink what we measure. In this book, I've tried to argue that perfectionism is a cultural phenomenon, our obsession with perfection and the knock-on toll perfectionism takes on our mental health and relationships is part of a deficit treadmill on which we're all forced to run, ever more frantically and with ever more tension, devoting more and more of ourselves to perfecting the things we think are imperfect, End quote. Right now, in this crucial time, let's hit the brakes instead of just keeping our foot on the gas. What we truly need is to slow down and take stock, Progress towards defeating perfectionism won't be substantial until we embrace this reality. It's not until we choose to heal ourselves, our communities, and our environment over chasing material possessions and gizmos. Until we shift from rivalry to unity, from waste to conservation, and stop profiting from actions that hurt people or nature. In short, until we recognize that economic growth always comes with a cost, and it's not worth it if our well-being and joy are on the line. Democratic nations will always need metrics and benchmarks by which to measure their progress. In the wealthier ones, economic growth is ill-suited to this challenge for the reasons we've just discussed, which begs the question, what measure of progress should be used instead? The answer, I believe, is happiness and well-being. Because if instead of prioritizing goods and services, we prioritize happiness and well-being, then we can ask what the trade-offs are each time a new policy is proposed. What are the happiness and well-being trade-offs if employees are stripped of their rights to take paid vacations? Or a public library sold to a property developer? Is the boost to the GDP worth it? Or will these policies make life for most people harder and more miserable? End quote. You know, it's kind of funny how we've missed the boat on measuring how well we're really doing as humans. But maybe there's hope on the horizon because there's some super cool stuff happening. Over in New Zealand, they're doing this genius thing where they're actually factoring happiness and well-being into their policy decisions. In Bhutan, they've got something called the Gross National Happiness Index. How cool is that? They use it to decide if a policy is a thumbs up or a no-go based on how it affects people's well-being. It's like these countries are showing us that there's way more to life than just making money. Happiness and well-being are the real treasures we should be chasing. Insight number seven. Basic income. Quote, a minimum assumption of any decent society is that people have an unconditional right to exist. People shouldn't need to justify or earn their existence, and they certainly shouldn't have to prove themselves in order to eat or sleep somewhere warm. Instead, people should be free to express themselves how they wish, take as many risks in self-exploration as they want, and if they should fail, have the right not to starve or find themselves destitute. These ideals are at the core of basic income, a centralized economic program that guarantees income to everyone. Under the policy, all people receive no less than is minimally required to sustain themselves, but also no more. Basic income expands personal freedom. It means that no person is economically dependent upon another. Entrepreneurs, for example, can take whatever risks they like without fear of losing the clothes off their back. All who work get paid on top of a basic income, which only becomes helpful should they need it. More than any one single policy, basic income would extinguish the fire of perfectionism. Unlike the fake freedom of winner-takes-all markets, basic income provides real freedom. End quote. Whoa, this idea really piqued my curiosity. I'm still digesting it, but on the surface, it's like a burst of awesomeness. Imagine if we could give people the chance to go after their dreams without being tied down to survival jobs. Like a world where nobody's treated like a cog just because they're not in the best situation. And think about the impact, slashing poverty levels for real. So folks aren't struggling for the basics. It's like a total plot twist in how the world is run today. Insight number eight, closing thought. Quote, reader, we are enough. Every last one of us, the lonely night porter at the Hind Hotel and the worn-out engineer at the hydro plant, the hard-up cleaner scrubbing muck from the bathroom floors and the frazzled banker cutting million-dollar swap. Beneath our brittle exteriors, we're the same bone, flesh, and blood. If we could just accept that common humanity, if we could know that no one is perfect or could ever be made perfect. Then we discover that yearning, wanting, craving, and constantly trying to update, fix, and improve things are fleeting and meaningless conditions, and that their ubiquity in this culture disconnects us from the astonishing, animating spirit of our imperfections. You have the right to love and live contentedly inside your beautiful, imperfect self and your beautiful, imperfect planet. Fight for, it. end quote. And that wraps up the insights I had to share from the perfection trap. Hopefully, one of these nuggets struck a chord and can help you level up your own life. Until next time, stay curious and keep embracing the wonders of knowledge. You've been listening to Philosopher Insights with your host, Herb Landmark. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.